This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What a way to start a radio show. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Bob Salter. On our program on The Fan on Sunday mornings, we try to have a good time, especially this time of the year. This may be our... Hmm... Eh, this may actually be our favorite time of the year for doing this show. I'm very pleased today because we have a guest who is in studio with us, and she has spoken with us once before on our program. We had a lively discussion then. We have a lot of areas that we are going to cover in our discussion today with uh, Deborah Blum, who is in studio. She is an experienced a litigator. Um, she's been a trial attorney. She has a very interesting uh, background uh, because she's admitted to practice throughout the courts of New York State and before the federal courts of the Eastern and Southern Districts of uh, New York. Um, she practices matrimonial, divorce, and family law. Now, there's so many different areas where we can go in this discussion, but I mentioned in your background the areas that you cover, and I always like to establish a little bit of background for folks listening to us as to where our guests are kind of coming from their perspective. What was it that motivated you to go into this field of law? Well, I actually also do criminal defense, mm -hmm. so that's how it all started. To this day, I do a, handle a lot of criminal defense work, and when I was in law school, I worked for a criminal judge, and it was just an amazing experience. And then right after law school, I was really fortunate, and I worked for the Nassau County Legal Aid Society. It kind of just happened. It wasn't necessarily something I was looking to do. It just fell in my lap, and then the experience I had there was phenomenal. Why? Why do you say that? Because you really learn how to do your trade. You are thrown into the mix about a week after you get there. You have to start doing arraignments, which is when somebody first faces their criminal charges. And at first, it's very overwhelming because you've never done it before. Law school is very different than actually practicing. But by being thrown into the mix, that's the best way to learn. And what do you say to people who are expressing an interest in the field of law, especially young women? Well, 
I think that there are a lot of lawyers, so it's not that easy for people to get jobs, and law school is very expensive. So it's like anything else in life. If you really want it, it's something you should go for. Having a law degree is never going to hurt, even if you don't end up practicing law or you only do it for a couple of years. Many of my friends at this point have transitioned from their careers in law to another area, but it's it's really always a great tool to have. You just have to make sure that you can afford the cost of law school mm-hmm. and that you foresee yourself having a strong desire to practice or being able to apply it elsewhere. And women can do anything and anything they put their mind to. So if this is what they want, then they should go for it. Just be forewarned. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not always so easy to get a job. You mentioned that you know you do practice criminal law in addition to the areas that I mentioned in introducing you, um, matrimonial, uh, divorce, family law. For some people listening to us, they may think, well, okay, that establishes that very clearly. Other people may be confused and say, what are the differences? Well... <laughs> Probably with this, people can understand the difference and hope that they're never going to be accused of a crime. But uh, there are some similarities. It's a courtroom experience. If you're having a divorce or a custody proceeding, sometimes those matters will settle outside of court. So you don't need to see a judge. People can amicably amicably decide how they want to go forward with the person they're no longer going to be living with or married to. But a lot of people are unable to do that and they go into court and it gets very messy. Whereas with a criminal matter, I find that it's less messy. Many of those cases don't go to trial. You end up having a settlement and Overall, it's a much better experience for the litigant themselves, although the fear of going to jail, I can't imagine having that. Mm. And in defending a client, I'm always curious about this. As an attorney, as a defense attorney, does it matter to you whether the person's guilty or not? You know what? I actually had a really unique experience this year. I defended someone who was accused of manslaughter. So he took another man's life. And at the end of the day, it was very difficult for me to walk into court and face the victim's mother and family members because you could feel their pain. And my client made a split second decision, which was extremely out of character for him. He had no prior criminal record. When I would go meet with him, I would bring people that work for me and every single person would say the same thing. I can't believe he did it. And things aren't always so black and white, but it is really difficult when it's a serious violent felony offense to see the victim or to see their family members and see how their life has been altered. But then you also have your client and his or her family members and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. It's going to have a tremendous impact on their lives. All right. We have a lot of different areas where we're going to go in this discussion. I wanted to start with one of them that seems like a natural on WFAN. 
couple weeks back, we had the situation in a Yankees-Minnesota Twins game where a foul ball off uh, the bat of um, the third baseman, Todd Frazier, um, unfortunately um, hit this young girl. And this sparked a slew of areas of discussion, as one might expect. And also, um, basically, a kind of a policy change on the part of the uh, Yankees in terms of extending the netting uh, at the stadium. First, your reaction to the way that was handled. Well, I think Todd Frazier handled it beautifully. Everybody's in agreement about that. The girl's father really praised him and how he's reached out and spoken out as well as other Yankee players who all are saying the same thing that the Yankees needed to extend their netting. You know, a few weeks later, the Yankees did announce that for the 2018 season, they're going to place up additional netting. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, the Yankees themselves have come under a lot of criticism. The top executives there are the ones that are facing critique. They didn't reach out to this little girl's family. And, and even if they didn't announce right away that, yes, we are going to expand our netting because, you know, there are reasons why they wouldn't do so. But fan safety is paramount. So they arrived at the right conclusion. It's just they should have reached out to the little girl's family, and they should have handled this better than they did. In the approach that was taken, and you say they should have handled it better than they did, is that from a public relations standpoint? Well, it's just from every standpoint. You know, legally, I don't think that they have liability. They... Definitely were within the Major League Baseball requirements for netting. Only 10 other teams extended their netting. But one of those teams was the Mets because a local politician called for both the Mets and the Yankees to do so. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that there's some legal liability. I, I would really hope that they pay for the extensive medical care that this little girl needs. There was also a male fan, an adult that was hurt recently. And these are life-altering injuries. And it's not like these people are just going to be able to go back to their regular routine. Of course, the little girl, the hope is that in the future she gets a lot better and that she's young and her body regenerates. But I think it's from a lot of different standpoints that it should have been handled better. You know, there's so many areas where we can go in this discussion. Um, one of the areas that I want to touch upon that seems a natural follow-up to what you just said, too, is this whole idea of um, lawsuits and the, at times, seemingly quick move to um, want to sue uh, on uh, the parts of uh, people who feel that they have been uh, injured as well. Um, we're going to talk about that as we continue. we got a lot to get to on our program, and uh, Deborah is going to be with us for our entire show. We are with you from 6 until 7.30. That's when the NFL preview happens. It's another big football Sunday 
on the fan. I'm Bob Salter, and Deborah Blum is with us for our entire program. Um, by the way, we're going to be touching upon a lot of different things. If you want to um, weigh in on point with something that we're talking about in our discussion, 877-337-6666 is our number here at the fan. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. I'm Bob Solter. We are in discussion with Deborah Blum on our program. Deborah is an attorney, and she is talking with us on our program about a number of um, legal issues we've really just begun in discussion. Um, one of the areas where I wanted to turn in our talk with you is to talk about these cases um, involving a couple of um, names from uh, Hollywood, um, specifically Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby. Let's talk a little bit about these allegations against them. Obviously, a lot of people find the discussion, the allegations to be very troubling. Let's begin there. In terms of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein, Are how different are they from those against Bill Cosby? Well, I want to say that I'm really excited to be here, and I didn't mention that earlier. It's it's so nice to be in your studio. With Harvey Weinstein, there are definitely similarities to Bill Cosby. These are both top people in Hollywood who it's a tremendous disappointment to their fans, to everyone, I'd say. You know, with Bill Cosby, a lot of us grew up watching his show. And then to hear about these accusations, you know, your childhood dream of this perfect family is shattered because you realize it it wasn't perfect. You know, it's just, it took away a, a lot for a lot of people, even though it was just a TV show. You didn't want to think that the main star was doing these things. And with Cosby and Harvey Weinstein, the women say that there were patterns of behavior. With Harvey Weinstein, it's that he would have beautiful women go to his hotel. They thought they were meeting for breakfast, for lunch, but instead they'd be sent up to his room where he'd try to get them to give him a massage or he wasn't wearing very much clothing. And with Bill Cosby, it was the women were drugged and they explained a similar experience where he would give them something and then they would exhibit similar symptoms. And it's just really scary. Mm. So in a case like that, let's put you in the role of defense attorney. Okay. Let's say you're representing Harvey Weinstein. How do you go about that? Well, the number one thing you do is you he had eight settlements, I believe, with the women that have accused him. And just because he made a settlement, that doesn't mean the accusations are true. You know, also in this day and age, it's possible that these women could band together. I'm not saying that's what happened here, but it's possible that they could find what people accuse him of in the past and then say the same thing now, forcing him into a settlement. It's also possible in the agreements that they made with him that there's a non-reporting clause that they won't bring it to law enforcement. And you have to see based on the state that occurred in if that's something that could hold up in court. But that's definitely the first way you go. The New York Times has come under some fire for 
publishing their expose piece on Weinstein because his team is saying that they provided information that debunked a lot of what they had in their story. Mm -hmm. So if the New York Times did that, that still doesn't invalidate the story, though, does it? Well, they could have a be guilty of defamation, which would just mean it, it doesn't mean that with the women, some of them are saying aren't true. It just could be the way they reported it, a lot of inaccuracies. So it doesn't take away from the women's claims. It's just the way it was reported or some of the things that the women say might have already been proven to be not true through the investigation of the companies that he works for. All right. I alluded to something before we paused for our um, break earlier in sports update. And that is about this idea of the number of lawsuits that there are in trial proceedings, court proceedings. Um, to some people, it seems like Everybody wants to sue. Everybody feels they've been um, aggrieved in some way and um, or somebody gets hurt, they're immediately looking to sue. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's absolutely a fair assessment. I go to court three, four, five days a week, and the number of litigants in there is insane, in my opinion. We're a very litigious nation, and that creates a lot of liability. It drives up costs for us ourselves when we go to a game or to a concert. We're paying more money because of the number of lawsuits. And what does that do also to court proceedings if there's that many litigants and proceedings taking place. It slows things down. You know, sometimes there are lawsuits that are absolutely worth it. You know, if some of these women wanted to go after Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, I can see why they went to a man to meet with a man that they thought was going to help their career and they were vulnerable and taken advantage of potentially. And in other instances, if you go to a Yankees game and you have a minor injury, sometimes things happen. You know, I absolutely could see if somebody like this little girl's family wants to sue, although I don't know that the Yankees are liable because you assume responsibility when you go into the stadium. Uh, it's just there's a time and a place like everything else. Speaking of lawsuits, this topic, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in the aftermath of the horrible events that took place in Las Vegas uh, last weekend, last, I guess it was Sunday night, uh, with the number of people who were killed, um, the gunman reportedly taking his own life, and I think it was something like 500 people uh, injured by all these shots that were being fired. Now, there are all kinds of theories about exactly what took place, and people have issues as to whether or not there was a lone gunman or that person had help. That's not where I'm going in my question. My question is, to go back to this idea of lawsuits, 
Do you think we're going to see a flood of those coming? Absolutely. We've already seen that one of the victims' families is bringing up the issue of going after the gunman's estate. I believe that this was a moneyed individual, but his assets certainly are not going to be enough to compensate for all of the brutal damage and loss of life. And under Nevada law, that has to be done quickly that they need to proceed against his estate. Why does it have to be done so quickly? Because it's a law. I believe it's within 90 days they have to bring an action. You know, I don't know from there. As you said, this isn't my main Mm -hmm. area or an area that I practice in. It's just something I saw when reviewing for today. Okay. So bringing an action basically means just filing a notice of intent? Yeah. Or they file in court to try to garnish the settlement of his estate. Mm-hmm. What about the idea of something like a class action lawsuit or lawsuits? You know, I think here that they might go after victims will probably go after the Mandalay Bay. They're definitely the deepest moneyed pocket here. And it's a question of foreseeability. Do they have liability? In this day and age, I think an attorney for these victims could make a really good argument that something like this is foreseeable. We've seen it in Europe, and we've seen things here in the United States. And like, But in Colorado, when this happened, the court ruled that the movie theater was not responsible. So maybe the court would do that again here. I'm sure that if lawsuit is brought against the hotel, they're going to settle because they want to be seen as the good guy. Mm. What about the city of Las Vegas? Well, I think that this was in the city of, it's not actually in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. It's in technically the city of paradise. So that's so ironic here and just such a tragic way that this, these people went to have a good time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this guy brought in 10 bags full of firearms into the hotel who's supposed to have an advanced security network and they didn't pick up on the fact that he installed a surveillance device in his peephole or one outside of his room on a service cart. And, you know, I'm not trying to shift blame to the hotel. They did not want this to happen. You know, in no way, shape or form am I trying to say that. It's just in somewhere like Las Vegas, I'm a bit surprised that a hotel with such an advanced security system didn't see this, any signs of this. That and the fact that in Las Vegas, one of the things that is present, there's a lot of cameras. Okay, there's a lot of security basically everywhere. And yeah, the question, natural question becomes, okay, how did no one pick up on the fact that there were some at best, strange things going on. Right. Well, I was reading an article about this, and I do believe it might come out that there were some warning signs that the hotel 
missed. You know, if you're installing a surveillance system in the door, that should trigger an alarm somewhere. Or if you're putting something outside of your room that is out of the ordinary, especially if he didn't call room service, you know, maybe he did. Maybe he planned this so well that he was able to elude everyone. And it's not like the the hotel values your privacy. That's What they want to provide you with is a private experience where if you feel like staying in your room the whole time and you have a do not disturb sign, Mm -hmm. that's the service they're going to provide you. This man had a do not disturb sign the whole time he was there. Now, in this case and cases like this, one can think that this could inspire... um, even more in the way of security precautions and the like at outdoor events, concerts, etc. Do you think that's actually going to take place? Yes. Or, or is it already? I, I really, you know, other hotels in Las Vegas have responded. Now their guests have to go through... They have to be scanned. Their baggage is going to be subject to check. But it, it brings up, you know... Are we gonna ha- are we gonna assign liability for mass shootings? Is that what the world has come to? And it, it seems like the answer is yes. You know, this is something that's unfortunately becoming predict should become predictable and expected. It's not or- unforeseen anymore. That's actually a frightening thought when you stop and think about that, uh, because those words. And as I'm listening to you say that, I'm thinking those words, mass shootings, really, that shouldn't become part of common discussion. It it should be a rarity, one would think. You know, in this day and age, it's not a rarity. It's really, really frightening. I went to a concert the other night, and the amount of security personnel, NYPD, people that were working at the stadium, it's... I was at the Yankees game. I, I was very fortunate. I got to go to the legend seats. And even there, you see p- police officers on the field. There are armed guards that are right by first base, second base, third base, home plate, everywhere. It's just part of life nowadays. Mm. It's an interesting something to think about. Um, talking with Deborah Blum on our program. Deborah is an attorney, and she's sharing with us. Um, she has a website, by the way, at Deborah J Blum. That's D E B O R A H letter J B L U M. That's all is one word. dot com. And she's our guest on our program. We're with you till seven thirty this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on the fan, and good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We are in discussion with Deborah Blum on our program. She's in studio with us, and we're covering a lot of different areas of uh, discussion. You want to join us? 877-337-6666. That's our number here at WFAN. Um, we touched a little bit upon this uh, situation in Las Vegas, um, the shooting, touched on the idea of uh, uh, all the litigation that there is. Um, involving um, liability um, or perceived liability touched upon these allegations against uh, Harvey Weinstein and uh, Bill Cosby. And also at the beginning of our discussion, we talked a little bit about the situation with the Yankees, uh, this move to extend the netting at uh, Yankee Stadium. 
And the uh, issue of whether or not um, teams can be uh, liable uh, as a result of um, the netting if there is an injury to a fan. Now, one of the other areas where I wanted to go in our discussion today is an area that always sparks a lot of attention because there are many people who they themselves or somebody they know can relate to the topic of drinking and driving. And we hear a lot statistically about the incidents of um, drinking and driving. There was just a report, literally I read it yesterday, uh, from I guess was the uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration uh, talking about in the state of um, New Jersey that the number of deaths from um, alcohol-related incidents has actually been on the increase. And there was a story as well that I had seen online about an assistant prosecutor um, in the central part of the state in Mercer County who was actually suspended from his job after being arrested for uh, drunken driving. This reportedly was following a crash in, I believe it was Hamilton Township in uh, Mercer County. Drinking and driving. This topic um, seems to always be lingering in our society. If somebody gets pulled over for drinking and driving, what should they do? Well, don't tell the police officer that you've only had two drinks if your blood alcohol content is going to show that you had a lot more drinks than that because it's not going to help your defense attorney get you a deal. You know, if you're brought into court for this, a lot of times the people have never been arrested before. It's a very nerve-wracking experience. I certainly don't encourage drinking and driving, but what a lot of people don't know is that if you're a woman and you've had, and you're relatively small, and you've had one or two drinks, you're probably going to be above the legal limit. The legal limit used to be higher, and then it's been brought down by law enforcement. You know, I understand trying to curtail a tragic accident or death due to someone getting behind the wheel when they're way too intoxicated to drive. But nowadays, if you've had just a little to drink and you're pulled over, you're going to be arrested. This idea of a designated driver we've heard about for years, actually for decades uh, at this point. Um, Obviously, there are people who make a conscious decision at times to have too much to drink and then get behind the wheel. Why is it, to go back to the very first part of your answer, that that does occur so often where someone who is stopped tells the officer or officers that, yes, they may have had one drink or two or a beer or two when, yeah, their blood alcohol level is going to 
skyrocket. I think that people feel that they're going to be able to talk their way out of being arrested. And that's usually not the case in nine out of ten times. If the police are going to arrest you, they're going to do it no matter what you say. So I advise my clients not to make a statement in this context and in every other context. Because anything you say can be twisted and used against you. And police sometimes don't record the statement accurately. Accurately. So what's going to happen? You're pulled over. You're going to be asked to do some standard field sobriety tests. A lot of people can't even pass those sober. The police are going to say that you're your breath smells like alcohol, you have red bloodshot eyes, then you're going to be brought back to the station and you're going to be asked to blown into, into a breathalyzer. Um, when you get pulled over, there's a portable one, but that's not scientific, scientifically accurate, so that can't be used against you in court, but it's a reason why the police are going to arrest you. So once you get back to the precinct, you know, I, I can't tell someone to commit a crime. I certainly am not trying to do that here, but if you know that your result is going to be astronomically high, and thank Thankfully, you didn't hurt anyone. You, you shouldn't blow into the breathalyzer. You should refuse the breath test. But you're going to be recorded doing more standardized field sobriety tests. So they're going to ask you to walk in a straight line. So you have to put on your best show to fiend sobriety when you're uh, being videotaped. And then you have those tests sometimes where people have to recite the alphabet and... Seems like just about everybody starts singing uh, as, as they're doing that. Um, at a basic level, what's the difference between DWI and DUI? Well, drive, it's it's the amount of alcohol you have in your system. And driving while ability impaired or driving under the influence, those are the violation level crimes. It depends on where you live, what they call it. But in New York State, it's between a .06 and a .08, and that's a really relatively low amount of alcohol. And you have working people, whether they have blue or white collar jobs, these are people that go to work every single day, and they're not aware, unlike the prosecutor you brought up before or myself, that the amount of alcohol in your system is is really low, uh, that you're going to get arrested. And then people have their license suspended, so they can't drive to work uh, unless their attorney makes a certain application on their behalf, which hopefully will be granted. So there are all kinds of repercussions, and people become really scared. And as a defense attorney, it's really hard to get anything better for your client than the infraction level, which is not a crime. So even if you're just charged with the infraction from the onset, your defense attorney is not likely to get you just a slap on the wrist of a, a speeding ticket. That's a thing of the past. Oh, why would that be the case? I mean, that's, that doesn't seem like that would be logical for you'd be able to, to get away like that. Well, it's not that you're getting away with something. Um, it's really that the amount of alcohol in your system for these ability impaired is really low. 
and it's a way for the state to make money because people that get pulled over for these offenses have enough money to be driving a car. The penalties are tremendously high. You're going to have to pay for an attorney or even if you're appointed one by the state, you're still going to have to pay for a fee to reinstate your license. The fee in court is a lot higher than for other relatively nominal crimes. So it's it's really just a big money maker and yes, I it's absolutely important for the state to regulate people who are drinking and driving, but there's a very big difference between scenarios of someone that's had way too much to to drink versus somebody that had a glass or two of wine. It's just their body doesn't process the alcohol in a way that is going to have them be under the legal limit and Scientifically, it's proven that at certain levels, you're not going to injure someone and take their life. What happens if a minor gets pulled over for drinking and driving? Well, in the state of New York, there's a no tolerance policy. So they're going to usually end up with a criminal conviction or hopefully their defense attorney could come up with some creative way to help them where that's not going to be the case. Or maybe they're under the age that it's going to be held against them as an adult. So it's really scary. And it's it's a lot for a family to have to have their child go through that. In a lot of other countries, there are civil penalties for drinking and driving. Your license is suspended and you get a hearing to determine for how long. But it's not that you're in criminal court, which for most people, they're they're never going to be in criminal court again, except for this one time for drinking and driving, and it's frightening. And basically, no one wants to be in a situation where they're uh, in criminal court because it's not a real pleasant experience, um, to say the least. Right. Well, it's just people are really fearful of going to jail for a first time drinking and driving offense. You're not going to typically unless there's an accident and somebody's been hurt. Uh, Some people really do have an alcohol problem and then their case could be diverted to treatment court where hopefully they're going to get the help they need and this will be prevented in the future. And then unfortunately, you do see recidivist offenders who habitually drink and drive. Now, I think it's okay okay to throw the book at those people, but criminal law isn't so black and white. I had a client who did have a DWI, a violation from a few years ago, and then he was sleeping in his car and it was suspected that he was under the influence of alcohol. And this is a man that works very hard and has a family, owns a home, and Fortunately, the prosecutor agreed to give him a second break, a second chance where he had to do has to do a lot of alcohol treatment, many, many hours where alcohol monitoring bracelet, but he's not going to end up with a criminal conviction. And really, I I hope that he doesn't do it again. Mm -hmm. Interesting discussion that we are having on our program on the fan this Sunday morning with Deborah Blum. She has joined us in studio. You want to join us on the phone? Uh, you certainly can at 877-337-6666. That's our phone number here at WFAN. And I'll tell you what, uh, as after our top of the hour update, what we'll do, try and do is get to some uh, calls from some folks because I know when we put out this topic of um, DWIs and DUIs, again, a lot of the people listening to our discussion today 
can relate to this because they themselves have been through this process or somebody in their family has. Um, to follow up on something you mentioned earlier, and we're going to pause in just a moment here. If I'm pulled over for drunk driving, can I insist on speaking with an attorney before I do any of these breath or blood tests? Well, you could refuse the test. There, the, your attorney would most likely just say, don't cooperate. But if you don't cooperate, you're going to get arrested. So it's a lose-lose situation. So is sleeping in your car with your key in the ignition because under New York state law, if it, you're suspected to have alcohol in your system, you're also going to be arrested then too. So that's like a double whammy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the good news there is that I tried a case and won it where my client was sleeping and supposedly had his foot on the brake. It just was such an unbelievable accusation that the jury let him off. So some of the things are really ridiculous and the cops should just wake the guy up or the woman up and say, stop sleeping in your car. I think that's more a thing men do than women. Boy, we could go into a really long discussion on that topic. Trust me, <laughs> trust me we could. Uh, Deborah Blum talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. You want to join us in our discussion, 877-337-6666. I'm Bob Solter, and thank you for being part of our program this morning. WFAN, WFAN-FM, New York. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter, along after our 8 o'clock, our 8 o'clock update. It is the Sports Edge program with uh, Rick Wolf. At 7.30 this morning, the NFL preview program happens on The Fan. We're having an interesting discussion. We've covered a lot of different topics with uh, Deborah Blum. She is a New York City-based attorney, and she's shared a lot with us in our chat thus far. Deborah J. Blum, that's all as one word, dot com, uh, her website uh, for contact information. There's a lot of areas where I want to go in um, our chat with you, but I also said what we'd try to do is work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us, and it looks like as I suspected, our phone lines are pretty much jammed. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. We go first to Ron, who's been waiting forever in Oceanport, New Jersey. Now, Oceanport, isn't that where Monmouth Park is? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. I'm not far away. Okay. Ron, good morning. Thanks for waiting on so long. Welcome to The Fan. All right, let me couch this. I have a bias leaning towards defense attorneys. Uh, dad went to Harvard, and I love my dad. So this is said with uh, even with a bias. I want to uh, challenge uh, Miss Blum concerning her comment about the money-making aspect of point six point eight alcohol, and it goes like this. The driving culture on the roads where I drive, like the Garden State Parkway, is scary, scary, scary. When one combine, and by the way, just a little side note, about 40 years ago, Johnny Carson was sitting on the stage, and they demonstrated how powerful alcohol was in terms of coordination. 
they had a board with holes in it from large to small. And after one drink, his coordination was impaired. So here's my case, although I'm very supportive of leniency. When I'm being tailgated by these millennials, I become anxious and I feel truly threatened for my safety. So with the driving culture and individuals with aggression, not even rage, having one or two drinks in them, I really think we go back to the traditional thought. Point zero zero alcohol is the standard that I'd like to have enforced. Um, so I'm sounding like a prosecutor, but there we go. Okay. Um, I have a lot of thoughts based on what you just said, but I'm going to let Deborah respond to that. Well, I think Johnny Carson isn't the uh, person that you should rely on because who knows if he was exaggerating. I hear you, Ron. You know, it's it's could be really dangerous. Some people react differently to alcohol, but it, it might be too much of a police state if we have zero tolerance or it's something that could work, then people will just know they can't drink and drive. You know, I don't want anyone to lose a life or get hurt because someone took the wheel who shouldn't be driving due to too much alcohol. I I could see this both ways, but, you know, of course my job is to zealously defend my clients, and as you said yourself, people really should get leniency if it's their first time, or that's my take on it, unless, some, you know, it's just it's not so black and white. Right, and I buy into the first time because statistically people get their first DUI um, based on um, uh, data provided are not alcoholics and don't have a drinking problem. They just made a mistake. So I'm very supportive, and I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you for your patience on the phone as well, Ron. Take care. Ready? We stay in New Jersey. Let's go to uh, Michael in Parlin. Michael, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Thanks good, for holding on. Good morning. Uh, the last call stole some of my thunder, but mm-hmm. I'd also like to challenge the attorney when uh, she made the statement uh, concerning smelling alcohol on your breath. Uh, that's impossible because alcohol doesn't smell, doesn't have an odor. Uh, I, the, the proper term to use is alcoholic beverage. Well, you have to tell the police that, not me. I'm using their terminology. Of course, as a defense attorney, I know that. And that's the argument that you make to the jury when your client goes to trial. So maybe the police need to have an education on this area. I have one more question. Go ahead. Hello? Yes, go ahead. We're listening. Yeah, I, I got for a minute. The other, the other issue... Is uh, in the 1970s, the blood alcohol content was 0.15, then it went to 0.12, then to 0.10, and now 0.08. Uh, so, yes, there has been dramatic reductions, but you know, studies show that at 0.02, you're losing coordination. So, I don't think that 0.08 is, is high at all. And, and refusing a breathalyzer is uh, implied consent. You're going to get you're going to get charged anyway if you go that route. 
Yeah, and you're also, you could have your license taken away from you for a year or more, depending on what state you're in. But then, you know, it becomes a legal loophole when your license is taken away from you for a refusal. There's a hearing that you have outside of criminal court in New York State where the police officer has to show up. And if the officer doesn't show up, you know, they're busy. It's not that I'm saying they're blowing off their responsibilities, but they have other work to do, so they can't go to that hearing. And then the person's license gets taken temporarily reinstated. So this is far from a perfect system. Michael, thank you for your patience on the phone and for your call this morning to The Fan. 877-337-6666 is our phone number. Bob from Little Ferry is up next. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, uh, Bob. Good morning, Deborah. Hi. I would like to say one thing about the uh, the people that before me are talking about the liquor. I have a trucking business, and years ago, you know, I was young. I frequented the bars. I, I did my thing. And all of a sudden, there came a news report out that the state of New Jersey would begin, initiate random checks on the highway to check for people drinking. Mm. Now, I always felt that when I drank, I was still a capable driver. But all of a sudden, I says, oh, my goodness, I'm driving down the highway. They're going to get me on a random test, and they may take my license, and I'm out of business. Mm-hmm. And so from that time on... Believe me, uh, my drinking is very controlled. Uh, I never get uh, polluted or anything like that. So just a lesson for a lot of people listening out there. The one thing I wanted to ask you, Deborah, uh, and Bob, I look, I listen to your show, as you know, frequently. And many times after your show is off, I may turn on the TV. And I'll turn on the TV maybe to get the latest weather update or something like that. Invariably, I turn on a station that has law and order on it. Well, Law and Order is an hour show, and when and when the show when the show ends, it doesn't even give you a break to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Immediately, the next segment starts, and it starts. There are many times I have things to do on a Sunday morning. Four hours later, at twelve o'clock, I'm still in the living room looking at Law and Order. So I, I I call myself a basket uh, defender, or you know, involved with the legal system because I love the shows, but. Deborah, my question is this. Many, many times in life, people cannot afford it, and therefore they need a public defender. And when you look at those law and order shows on TV, the clients, regardless of their penny list or their, their people with money, they're always well represented. Of course, that's done to, to make a program. But in real life, people have to depend on a public defender. Now, in my experience in the community I live in, I know, for instance, there's a public defender because you read about him in the paper all the time. He's been in that position, believe it or not, 20 to 30 years. My question is this. Are people in good hands with a public defender? I know they probably don't have a choice, but are they? Are they properly represented? And the the people that are the public defenders, is their main job to probably settle out of court and so the, the, the case doesn't go to trial? Uh, in other words, I really see a, 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 a void there for people that can't afford top attorneys. I mean, what do they do? Do people ever come to you and say, gee, could you represent me? And you say, well, I don't think you could meet the obligations, and therefore I think you need to consult a public defender. Explain to me how someone who perhaps doesn't have the money uh, has committed a crime or believes that they're innocent of a crime what do they do when you come to the subject of public defender? 
Well, you raise a great topic, and I could sit here and I wish we could speak for a long time about this. You know, there are many wonderful public defenders out there, and as you said, there's one in your town that's been doing it for 20 years, so he he or she knows the rules inside and out, and they're not working with the district attorney's office. A lot of times, your goal as a defense attorney is to settle a case. It's not to take it to trial because there are too many risks. People will complain that their public defender doesn't call them back. You know, I think that's probably one of the biggest issues is that they have so many clients, so they're not able to service the clients the way that a private attorney will do and return the phone calls and really engage with the client. But the public defenders have relationships with the district attorney's office, so sometimes they could get a good deal due to that relationship. But there's also the flip side. A lot of people will complain and say that they don't feel like they're taken care of. So I think that you have to go with your gut. If you feel that you have an attorney that's not making a difference or fighting hard on your behalf, you're going to have to come up with the money to hire someone that is because you can't just walk into court and say, oh, the court appointed attorney I have, I want a different one. It doesn't work that way. Which which way uh, do you think would be better to be a better representative? In other words, uh, in that office, the public defender's office, are there two things? Are there one, perhaps an attorney who has practiced for many years and has now, I don't want to use the word, but I will resign to the fact that he will become a public defender? Or number two, is it also, or could it be a stepping stone for young attorneys that may be filtered through the uh, the public defender's office? Would uh, you would be, feel more comfortable being uh, represented by a young person who you feel has a lot of zeal and is, want to make a mark for themselves? Or, or like you said, comfortable with someone that knows the system and knows the prosecutor and... Uh, is willing to settle, which way would you side with? That's a really hard question. Hopefully I'll never (laughs) have to be in that situation because it would be beyond embarrassing if I was ever arrested and had to go in front of one of the judges I appear in front of. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how to answer your question. You know, there's pluses and minuses to everything. And when I was a public defender, I really wanted to win my cases. So that was... There you go, there you go. Yeah, that was my focus. But, you know, I I wasn't always the best at visiting my clients who were incarcerated. So, you know, it's hard to say. Robert, the workload of cases is uh, enormous, and that's probably the, the, the compromise, yeah. Bob, yeah. Thank you, Bob, and Th- thank you, Deborah. Thank you very much. Thank you for your call. Thank we'll do more you. calls after we uh, take a pause, take a look around the sporting world this Sunday morning. It's the NFL preview that happens at 7.30 this morning. Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. And by the way, you know, I've neglected to mention this morning that fabulous Football Sunday program this long after our 9 o'clock update. You don't want to miss that because that's part of eh, some things that have changed a bit around here. If you haven't listened to it before, you will enjoy the show. Trust me. I know I do on Sunday mornings. We're in discussion with Deborah Blum on our show. Uh, She is an attorney who is based here in the city. Um, We tried to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. 877-337-6666, our number here at The Fan. I want to follow up on um, one thing in this talk about um, drinking and driving. If a police officer stops you and asks if you've been drinking, 
Deborah, do you have to answer? Um, you know, I can't advise anyone to lie. Uh, it's natural to respond. Uh, you know, the police officer, when they pull you over on the road, they just have to have reasonable cause to believe that you're committing a traffic offense, and that could be something as small as not using your turn signal. So then you're supposed to cooperate with their investigation. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell the, the viewers, uh, the listeners to lie. Uh, but if you admit to drinking, you know, things are going to probably go downhill from there. Okay. Now, DUIs from something like marijuana. How is that treated differently than alcohol-related offenses? Well, for that, you would actually have to submit to a blood test, which I would say you shouldn't do because that's a really invasive procedure. But the police, there, there is a way under New York state law that it, they don't have to prove that it's alcohol. It's just your ability is impaired due to another substance such as marijuana. So you definitely can be in the same situation, whether it's a narcotic, marijuana, or alcohol. And believe me, we could go in a whole discussion about um, that topic as well. And we will on this program at a time when we have a little bit more um, time to go into some of the areas surrounding that because there's a lot of things that are happening um, with that topic as well. When we talk about the penalties associated with convictions, are they – I guess the question is, to go back to something somebody asked earlier, are they tough enough? Are they too tough? I just want to briefly touch upon what you brought up. There are so many things we could talk about here, like people who are taking methadone. There was just a pretty public trial of a man that was driving after receiving methadone, and he killed a police officer. So this is a huge issue in this country. And then we get to the penalty phase. Are they enough? You know, it, I really think it depends on the severity of the crime. I think for people who it's their first time and it was a really low level of alcohol, that the penalties are too harsh because these are people that are going to work every day who try really hard to support themselves, support their families, and they find themselves most likely having to hire an attorney because they're above the income threshold for being appointed an attorney. And then they have to pay court fees, which are a lot higher than the basic fee for something silly like... Um, being disorderly on the street, the, the, the fee is not going to be as high as it is for a drinking charge. And then you have to pay a fee to reinstate your reinstate your license. So in that way, I do think the penalties are too severe. Deborah Blum talking with us on our program on the fan. Let's do a quick call before we wrap up. And we've only got a couple minutes time here. Mike in Rocky Point's been holding for a while. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Hey, good morning, guys. I really appreciate taking my call. And, Deborah, I do. I am in the law enforcement business, and I do respect what you do as a defense attorney. Uh, you know, there's checks and balances with this. Just to touch on the, the drugs aspect of it, and as you and I both know, you can take these medications therapeutically and not have your ability to be impaired drive them you know, to operate a vehicle safely. 
as far as the marijuana issue goes, there's no threshold, and there's really no, we know, you and I both know, 08, you're driving while intoxicated. You know, one, anything over that, 18, you're, you're aggravated. With the marijuana aspect, there's no numbers yet to really correlate what impairment is with that person operating impaired on marijuana to alcohol. Do you follow what I'm saying there, Deb? I do. I do. And, you know, this brings up a client of mine who definitely got a drinking and driving, and I think that your colleagues probably should have charged him with a marijuana charge because when he came to my office for his meeting, he was... Mike, Mike, I'm sorry, you're breaking up there. We're going to have to let you go. Unfortunately, your connection got lost. Um, Deborah, finish up what you were saying. Yeah, you know, Mike brought up an interesting issue. I had a client that once came into my office who was supposed to go and meet with his court-ordered drug assessment, and he was so high that I I didn't know what to say other than you have to cancel that appointment and reschedule it because it's not going to work out for you. So it's true. Law enforcement, you know, I, I really praise the police for doing their job and they have to protect us and they have to patrol the roads, the roads, but there's a flip side to everything. Deborah J Blum.com, the website for Deborah Blum, who is a New York city based attorney. Thank you very much. We've got to have you back and talk more with you on our program. Hopefully work in some more thoughts from people listening to us best with your work. I would love that. Thank you. After our 8 o'clock update, the Sports Edge. After a 9 o'clock update, it's football Sunday time. Hey, speaking of football, it's that time of the week. Our favorite show. You know what's up next. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.